We're working with these state legislators to make sure they have all of the information they need to draft the bills. In some cases, we actually draft them for them. Iowa was the first state that we got to work in. We did it quickly and we did it quietly. Honestly, nobody noticed. Well, guess what? Now we've noticed. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Glad to have you with us here. That quote at the top of the program, that woman you heard, that was a, a, a woman named Jessica Anderson. She's the executive director of the Heritage Foundation's so-called Heritage Action Fund. I'll play a little bit more of her later, but that was her basically boasting to a bunch of wealthy donors how her group is undermining democracy in states around the country by literally writing voter suppression bills for Republican state lawmakers that uh, they are then supposed to present and, and propose as if they are their own bills, often pretending that they are popular grassroots initiatives. When actually they come from the Heritage Foundation, uh, all of this in critical presidential swing states around the country. This scheme has been underway by Heritage Action uh, since at least the 2020 election when Donald Trump pretended there was massive voter fraud. And these bills are being presented now as a response to those false claims. Oh, even if there wasn't massive voter fraud, voters think there were. So we have to do something about it by making it more difficult to vote, etc., at least for, you know, certain people. Anyway, now the good folks at Documented.net, a good government watchdog and investigative reporting outfit, the ones who unearthed that video of Anderson addressing funders at a private conference in 2021, 
Uh, the folks at Documented have begun piecing together the funding for this grotesque initiative, and it's kind of jaw-dropping. This is an effort by dark money groups who are now spending tens of millions of dollars to adopt these voter suppression laws in states like, as you heard, Iowa, Georgia, uh, Arizona, and elsewhere. We'll be joined momentarily by Brendan Fisher, one of the nation's top campaign finance experts who now works at Documented to explain this obscene effort and what, if anything, can be done in response to it. And I also want to ask him about this new story just out yesterday from the Daily Beast's Roger Sullenberger on George Santos. Now, we haven't covered uh, Santos all that much on this program. Desi Doyne, have we even mentioned him at all? <laughs> Maybe once or twice? Uh, yeah, I, don't know. I mean, he seems to be, his lies seem to be well covered pretty much everywhere Correct. else. But we haven't, we've only, I think, referenced him in passing mostly. Uh, he's a, uh, I'm sure you know, Republican congressman from New York, freshman. He's getting plenty of coverage for all of these extraordinary lies about pretty much every single aspect of his life. Uh, that he ran on to become a U.S. congressman last November from lying about you know which schools he went to or didn't go to, to where he worked or didn't, to his lies about his own family escaping the Holocaust and his mother who was killed on 9-11, even though she actually wasn't. Uh, anyway, it's all lies, all of it. And frankly, House Republicans do not seem to care in the least. They've uh, Kevin McCarthy has now uh, seated him on committees in Congress because, frankly, they've got such a slim majority in the House that McCarthy has decided they need him there. So for now, he's staying. But because Santos is being covered so much elsewhere and because, frankly, lying about one's life when running for Congress isn't actually in and of itself unlawful. But it is on brand for Republicans. Well, it is. So anyway, I haven't had much to say or add about this idiocy. But lying about money in your campaign actually is unlawful. And on that, Sullenberger, Roger Sullenberger at uh, The Daily Beast, uh, detailed some new news that should get the attention, I would think, I would hope, of law enforcement officials if they aren't already paying attention. According to Sullenberger, late Tuesday afternoon, George Santos's political operation filed a flurry of amended campaign finance reports telling the feds, among other things, that a $500,000 loan that he gave to his campaign didn't, in fact, come from his personal funds as he had previously claimed. However, writes Sullenberger, while the newly amended filing told us where the funds did not come from, it also raised a new question. Where did the money come from? While both the old and new campaign filings uh, claim that the loans came, uh, came, quote, from the candidate, the campaign's previously most recently amended filings had ticked the box for, quote, personal funds of the candidate. But on the newly amended filings on Tuesday, that box is now unchecked. Now, you're allowed to give largely as much money as you want to your own campaign. Everyone else who wants to donate has to stick to very specific limits, which are much, much lower. 
Uh, no single person other than the candidate can give him or herself $500,000 directly to, you know, to a campaign for the U.S. House. So if Santos didn't give that money to himself, to his own campaign as a loan, then who did? Now, another amended filing on Tuesday, as Sullenberger documents, uh, disclosed that $125,000, quote, uh, loan from the candidate in late October also did not come from his personal funds. But like the $500,000 question, uh, Santos did not say where that money actually came from when when the loan was due or what entity, if any, had backed the money. If it was actually, for example, a bank loan that he took out to give to his own campaign. Now, in total, Santos is uh, supposedly loaned his campaign about seven hundred thousand dollars this way that he's now sort of being forced to admit was not actually his own money. But whose was it? And it's not a surprise, you know, uh, well, that he lied about this, but it is a surprise that there was $700,000 that he ha even had access to to loan in the first place. When he unsuccessfully ran for the House two years earlier, he claimed to only make about $50,000 a year. So how did he even have access to $700,000 to loan to his campaign last year? Now, as Josh Marshall of TPM notes today, citing Sullenberger's uh, report, quote, at the center of the Santos story from the beginning has been the question of how he went from being a chronic deadbeat, making 50000 a year in 2020, to making millions just two years later from his personal company, the DeVolder Organization, which is where he claims this $700,000 came from, or at least he originally made that claim. Uh, he made so much that he could loan his campaign almost three quarters of a million dollars, writes Josh. Well, now we may finally have an answer. That money he loaned his campaign, well, it wasn't actually his money. He then goes on to cite Sullenberger's report, but uh, notes that's not how this works. If you loan your money, if you loan money to your campaign, it has to be your money. If it's not your money... It's not you loaning money to the campaign. Critically, because it's not your money, you cannot loan or donate unlimited funds to your campaign. Josh writes, if I'm George and some pals want to give me money so I can donate or loan it, same difference to my campaign, that's treated as a donation from the pal to the campaign. And all the hard money campaign finance limits apply like twenty five hundred dollars uh, per uh, uh, per election, I think is what it is now. Twenty five hundred dollars is a lot different than seven hundred thousand dollars. So uh, as Josh notes, Santos now seems to be saying that he was a straw donor. To the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars to his own campaign, of course, straw donations are illegal. And, you know, so if I'm a millionaire, for example, I can't give uh, $2,500 to a whole bunch of people or even to one person and ask them to donate that to a campaign. I can't hide the fact uh, that I'm the one actually giving the money, that I violated the limit on how much money I'm allowed to give to a campaign by, you know, giving it to a bunch of other people to give in their name. That is illegal. So if the money was not Santos's personal money, since only the candidate 
him or herself is allowed to give more money to the campaign than allowed by campaign finance limits, whose money was it? Because it sure does not sound lawful at all. As Josh writes, both these new forms and, for that matter, Santos himself are so absurd that I guess we can't completely rule out the possibility that it's a clerical error. That they just inadvertently forgot to check that box this time. Uh, As he notes, that seems basically preposterous, but he can't totally rule it out because he seems to be admitting to several major crimes in this new filing. George Santos does. He notes, uh, Marshall notes, campaign reports get amended all the time. But at this scale, with this level of deception, I don't think you can just refile it this way and make it fine any more than you're off the hook for robbery if you just give the money back once you get caught. It's a major infraction. Now, Sullenberger's report at Daily Beast also quotes my guest who is joining me shortly, Brendan Fisher, on all of this, because, as I note, he's one of the nation's top campaign finance people with Brendan explaining, quote, I don't know what they think they were doing. Santos's campaign might have unchecked the box for personal funds of candidate, but it's still reporting that the money came from Santos himself. If the, quote, loan from candidate didn't actually come from the candidate, then Santos should come clean and disclose where the money came from. Santos can't just uncheck a box and make his legal problems go away. All of which raises a question that I have quietly wondered about. Since this story of Santos loaning his campaign $700,000 first came to light, I haven't, I don't think I've discussed it on the show, uh, in part because it seems so absurd. Uh, but did anybody actually loan the Senate camp, uh, the, the Santos campaign $700,000? Or did Santos just claim that he did? Originally it was him, now we don't know who. But was there actually $700,000 loaned to the campaign at all? Now, why would he lie about that? Well, for one, he was trying to make himself out to be a big shot, a successful real estate and finance guy, a la Donald Trump, his heroes with, you know, false claims about working for big banks and owning properties through his family business when he actually didn't. But also, you may recall last year, Uh, that uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz actually won a case at the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, our corrupted and stolen U.S. Supreme Court. When Cruz argued that personal loans made by candidates to their own campaigns can actually be paid back after the election by other people. Now, that seems ridiculous on its face. Uh, But as we discussed at the time, Ted Cruz actually got away with this argument at the U.S. Supreme Court for crying out loud. So he can now loan and any candidate can loan their own campaigns, let's say a million dollars. And then after they win the campaign, after they win the election, other people like donors and lobbyists, et cetera, can actually give Ted Cruz money to help pay off the loans that he himself made to his own campaign. In other words, after the fact, those donors can do exactly that and the candidate can make money off of it. Exactly. So once they're in office, you can give 
money to an elected official, which would otherwise be, you know, a bribe. As long so, as you say that it's to pay back this uh, campaign loan, uh, exactly. then hey, it's all right. So you can make tons of money this way, actually. It's a way to apparently lawfully now take payoffs from anyone you like after you are in office, which is bad enough. But given who we're talking about here, conman George Santos, I'm wondering if there was actually any money that anyone loaned his campaign or if it was all just a paper filing so that he could later, if he won the election, actually you know, get other people to give him that money, give him that $700,000, which I know sounds absolutely insane. And that's one of the reasons I have not raised it here, because I'm sure it's wrong and I'm sure that this stuff gets tracked. And if a candidate says he gave $700,000 to his own campaign, somebody looks at that and somebody, double checks, it happened. Well, we may not know where it came from, but surely they know that they actually gave $700,000 to their own campaign, right? So, yeah. It all sounds insane. My theory, I admit it, it's ridiculous, but it is George Santos we're talking about <laughs> here. So anyway, as long as I'll be joined by Brendan Fisher to uh, discuss, as planned, the critical sunlight that his organization is now bringing to the obscene multi-million dollar effort by Heritage Foundation to attack and undermine American elections and democracy itself. I will try to leave some time to see if Brendan has any thoughts on my admittedly insane, couldn't possibly be uh, true, <laughs> uh, couldn't possibly be the case, uh, theory about George Santos. Okay, all of that is straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by Bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. All the glitters isn't gold. No, it's not. All the glitters isn't gold. Sometimes it's sunshine. All the glitters, glitters, glitters. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Longtime Bradblog.com readers and Bradcast listeners will likely recognize the name Paul Wyrick. He was the revered far-right godfather of modern-day so-called conservative Republican politics. In 1973, he helped form the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank that has, for decades, held outsized power to influence Republicans and Republican policy in Washington, D.C., Back in 1980, at a convention of evangelical Christians in, I think it was Texas, where the uh, then-presidential candidate Ronald Reagan was also a speaker, Wyrick famously said the quiet part out loud regarding how folks on the right hope to win elections not by, you know, holding popular positions, but by preventing their opponents from being able to cast a vote at all. Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome. Good government 
They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Our leverage in the elections goes up as the voting populace goes down. That was Paul Wyrick, founder of the Heritage Foundation back in 1980. And though most Republicans since then have tried to sort of pretend that they have no actual interest in voter suppression... Well, that classic statement from Heritage Foundation's founder has really been the touchstone for GOP election laws and attempted voting restrictions uh, in the, what, 50 or so years since. And in recent years, the Heritage Foundation has been taking a more direct role in pushing for voting restrictions around the country. Since the 2020 election, as the investigative journalists and good government experts at Documented.net have been exposing and reporting recently, Heritage has doubled and frankly tripled down on those efforts big time. As reported at The Guardian earlier this month, the advocacy arm of the far-right Heritage Foundation, the powerful right-wing think tank based in Washington, D.C., spent more than $5 million on lobbying in 2021 as it worked to block federal voting rights legislation and advance an ambitious plan to spread its far-right agenda calling for aggressive voter suppression measures in battleground states. Previously unreported 2021 tax filings from Heritage Action for America, which operates as the foundation's activist wing, shows that it spent more than $5 million on contracting outside lobbying services. That outlay comes on top of more than half a million that the group invested in its own in-house federal lobbying efforts that same year as well as registered lobbying by Heritage Action staffers in at least 24 states. The tax filing documenting this spending was obtained by the government transparency watchdog group documented and was shared with The Guardian. It points to the pivotal role that Heritage Action is, in, is increasingly playing in shaping the rules that govern U.S. democracy itself. The efforts help explain the unprecedented tidal wave of restrictive voting laws that we have seen spread across Republican-controlled states in the wake of the 2020 presidential election. As the Brennan Center has reported, uh, more, more voter suppression laws were passed in 2021 in the wake of Donald Trump's evidence-free claims of massive voter fraud against him than in any year since the Brennan Center began monitoring voting legislation more than a decade ago. Yes, we have seen a virtual tidal wave of restrictions on voting since the last presidential election, the one in which nobody has been able to actually find any substantive problems, systemic or otherwise, that adversely affected the election. That is, unless you consider Republican candidates losing some elections to be a substantive problem requiring changes to voting laws and access to the ballot box. The recently uncovered expenditures by Heritage also signals a dramatic increase in Heritage Action's advocacy activities, The Guardian writes. In 2020, Heritage Action had reported no spending at all on outside lobbying. Nonetheless, the next year they began investing millions. Why? 
And whose money was it? Heritage Action, uh, their board includes the Republican megadonor Rebecca Mercer. And it is set up as a 501c4 nonprofit under the U.S. tax code, which exempts it from paying federal taxes at all. The group operates as a dark money group, avoiding disclosing the full sources of its total annual revenue, which is more than $18 million. In the past two years, as noted by The Guardian, the organization, through its public messaging, has echoed Trump's lies that U.S. elections are marked by rampant fraud. A private plan prepared last year by Heritage Action, ironically titled as its election integrity plan set out a two-year, $24 million strategy. That plan was obtained by Documented, and it proposed a two-prong approach that would work to block moves by Democrats in Congress to bolster voting rights while at the same time pressing Republican-controlled states to impose restrictions on the ballot box. The four-page plan, which I will link to when we post today's uh, program, uh, it notes, quote, where Democrats hold power, we must defend against bad policy. Where conservatives and our, our allies are in power, we must advance changes that protect the lawful votes of Americans. Well, That sounds fine, I guess. The Heritage Action Plan was published by The Guardian along with this uh, article for the first time. And part of the two-year strategy is to promote what it calls model election laws, focusing initially on eight battleground states. That would be Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, Nevada, Texas, and Wisconsin. Now, model election laws sounds a hell of a lot like the so-called model laws that have been long produced by the right-wing American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, which we have reported on in years past, as they have successfully made so-called model laws on just about everything that GOPers and, frankly, corporations wish to push into law They've made these uh, model laws, so-called model laws, available for state lawmakers to copy and paste and introduce back home at their state legislatures. Is there any non-right-wing equivalent of this? Should there be? I will ask my guest uh, about that momentarily. But as uh, reported by Mother Jones's Ari Berman and Documented's Nick Sergi back in 2021, before the amount of dark money pouring into this program has had now become clear, uh, during a private meeting with donors in Tucson, Arizona in 2021, Heritage Action's executive director, a woman by the name of Jessica Anderson, she boasted about the role that her group had played in pressing Republican-controlled state legislatures to impose these new strict restrictions on voting, including limiting uh, mail-in voting and early voting days, etc. And this was all done in the wake of the 2020 elections. In a video of that meeting obtained by Documented, Anderson told the donors that the group acted, quote, quickly and quietly in states like Iowa and Georgia to pass voting restrictions right after the 2020 election, boasting that, quote, Nobody noticed their behind-the-scenes influence. We're working with these state legislators to make sure they have all of the information they need to draft the bills. In some cases, we actually draft them for them. Or we have a sentinel 
on our behalf, give them the model legislation. So it has that grassroots, you know, from the bottom up uh, type of vibe. <laughs> Iowa was the first state that we got to work in, and we did it quickly and we did it quietly. Honestly, nobody noticed. At the end of the day, the bill that Governor Kemp signed and the Georgia legislature marshaled through had eight key provisions that Heritage recommended. I had one message for him. Do not wait to sign that bill. If you wait even an hour, you will look weak. This bill needs to be signed immediately. The state legislature in Georgia got it done, and you can help own this and cheerlead this if you sign it quickly. Do not delay. So that was Jessica Anderson, the executive director of Heritage Action, boasting that, oh, we actually drafted the bills for them, for the states, these voter suppression bills, you know, so that it has that grassroots type of bottom-up vibe. Not only are they not embarrassed, they're actually proud of this effort to make it more difficult to keep voters from voting. And their founder, their now late founder, Paul Wyrick, well, he said it more than 40 years ago, of course. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Heritage Action. According to the report at The Guardian, uh, a report written by The Guardian's Ed Pilkington and Documented's Brendan Fisher, they note that their group has now registered to lobby in at least two dozen states across the country. There will be more, not less of this, most likely. Joining us now is Brendan Fisher, an old friend of the show who, after many years at the Campaign Legal Center, is now Deputy Executive Director at Documented.net, an investigative watchdog and journalism project committed to holding the powerful interests that undermine our democracy accountable. That sounds helpful. Brendan Fisher, it has been a while, sir, but welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thank you for having me. Uh, This uh, spending of millions of dollars by Heritage Foundation on their uh, lobbying efforts in 2021, why are we only finding out about it now in 2023? Is it because it's something that you guys were only just able to find, or is it because the reporting requirements allow them to take this long before actually filing any actual financial statements? Yeah, it's a combination of things. Um, So one is that as a dark money group, Heritage Action and Heritage Foundation uh, need not disclose where their money is coming from, or in most cases, where that money is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the only limited transparency we get into Heritage Action fundraising and spending you know, comes about a year and a half later mm-hmm. uh, when it when it files its annual tax return. So mm-hmm. the Heritage Action's 2021 tax return was filed late last year, uh, and we reviewed it and were able to identify uh, the $5.1 million spent on outside lobbyists in 2021 as the group pushed uh restrictive voting bills at the state level and were pushed to block uh, voting rights legislation at the federal level. Should that reporting requirement uh, be changed in some way? Can it be changed? And, and if it was, as someone who's been covering campaign finance for so many years now, would it even help the public as you see it? Because it, it kind of feels at this point, Brendan, there are uh, so many you know millions and frankly now billions sort of sloshing around in both our electoral and political systems at this point. I'm not sure that the public even cares at this point, even if we did know about it earlier. If kind of feels like many have just sort of thrown their hands up, um, although maybe that's the point. 
Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, you know, certainly something like tax filings could be could be made public earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these groups have to file have to file their tax returns based on the prior year. Um, you know, almost a year later, mm-hmm. uh, they can get their books together and review their finances in time to provide you know something a little bit closer to real time transparency to the public. Um, and, and that's not going to provide um, a complete picture, but it provides details that you know, watchdog groups and journalists can use to help you know piece together a bigger picture of you know, how money is being spent, uh, where some of these restrictive voting bills are, are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it does hint at touch at a, a much bigger issue of you know the lack of transparency around fundraising and spending in a, in our political system, and mm-hmm. that's something that you know Heritage Action in particular uh, has has worked. To has worked to thwart or, or work to maintain, I should say. Yeah, um, it's worked to thwart legislation, you know, that would uh, shine a spotlight on dark money. I, I I think you meant to say has worked to exploit, and uh, you know, I don't know <laughs> if it's anything unlawful, but they have certainly taken advantage of it. As you note uh, at the Guardian, uh, it's not the only lobbying where these folks are. Uh, it's it's not only lob- the lobbying effort specifically where these folks are just pouring in money at this point. Uh, to try to affect state lawmaking and most troubling democracy itself here. You and uh, Ed Pilkington note that in 2021, the Heritage Action Organization reported paying more than $6 million to outside contractors for marketing and advertising. As I understand it, that's on top of the lobbying, and it's a sharp rise from the uh, under $2 million the previous year that they spent on marketing and advertising. Heritage has been around for about 50 years or so now. Any idea why they have suddenly decided to jump into uh, this entire uh, you know, anti-democracy campaign in such a big way and and where all of this money now seems to be flowing from yeah well you know as the the clip you played showed you know this this anti these anti-democratic tendencies are not new um among you know the far right and among the heritage foundation in particular mm-hmm. um you know heritage heritage action uh the, the 501c4 arm of the heritage foundation is relatively new and you know its creation and you know its continued growth in recent years you know has indicated that heritage is is, is willing to get more aggressive mm-hmm. um, and wade more uh, wade, wade into these these policy fights more more explicitly. You know, but the the, the media spending I, I think that's an important piece to note because Heritage Action's advocacy and its advocacy around voting rules was not limited to lobbying and not limited to. You know, drumming up, uh, drumming up grassroots support. Mm-hmm. You know, it also spent millions of dollars on TV ads in 2021 to influence lawmakers and the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, it spent millions of dollars on TV ads supporting Georgia's law, um, urging the governor to sign it, and also after that law, after Georgia's restrictive voting law, you know, triggered this backlash from businesses around the country. Um, mm-hmm. It was so controversial that Major League Baseball even moved the All-Star game from Georgia to Colorado in 2021. Well, Heritage Action in response spent you know, well over a million dollars on TV ads defending the law. They also, on the federal level, you know, as Heritage Action was working to thwart the passage of H.R. 1, the, the big democracy reform bill, mm-hmm. it spent uh, millions of dollars mm-hmm. on ads or uh, countless, countless amounts on ads in states like West Virginia and Arizona, mm-hmm. urging the the then Democratic senators in those states to oppose reforming the filibuster. 
you know, to allow democracy reform legislation to pass with a simple majority. Um, so it's really become, you know, Heritage Action has really become a, uh, a, a powerhouse. Um, you know, not only spending a lot of money on lobbying, but also spending a lot of money on, on TV ads in order to advance this anti-democratic agenda. I was uh, I had wanted to ask you about that, uh, Joe Manchin uh, in West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona, because I uh, this is critical. It's not just the effort in the states; it's also the efforts, uh, the federal efforts, because you know over the past two years, Democrats actually crafted two of the most significant and comprehensive voting rights and campaign finance reform measures that we have seen since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That would be the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. They were combined uh, into that H.R. 1 bill, a single measure. The U.S. House passed it when Democrats had control. Then it went to the Senate and uh, all, well, all 50 uh, uh, Senate Democrats said they were in favor of the measure, but just two of them, Cinema and Manchin, v- would not vote in favor of changing the anti-democratic filibuster rule in order to actually pass that what would have been landmark legislation. So do we know if, in fact, those two then-Democratic senators, Cinema has now become an, an independent, were they specifically targeted in a way that uh, other senators weren't, uh, or were their states specifically targeted in ways that others weren't, because Heritage knew they only had to flip, or, or I should say hang on to, uh, one or both of those uh, two supposed Democrats. Right, right. Yeah, so you know, protecting the filibuster was a, was a major priority for Heritage Action in, in early 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that you know, Heritage Action's executive director, Jessica Anderson, said mm-hmm. uh, on the video that we obtained that you played some snippets of at the, at the beginning of the show. Um, you know, she said protecting the, protecting the filibuster is an all-hands-on-deck moment, um, mm-hmm. because if, if Democrats change the filibuster, then they are going to be able to uh, enact uh, H.R. 1, you know, which not only is going to protect voting rights, but it's also going to end dark money. Yeah, um, and yeah. It's Jack Heritage Action and groups like it to, to greater transparency. They would have to disclose their donors. Um, so Heritage Action you know, absolutely targeted uh, Senator Cinema in Arizona and Senator Manchin in West Virginia. They did it with TV ads, um, and then in West Virginia in particular, they also did it with you know, drummed-up fake grassroots, grassroots activity. Mm-hmm. They, uh, Heritage Action and other groups organized buses from out of state, that bus activists from out of state to West Virginia, um, for a rally uh, that they called, uh, that, that was intended to save the filibuster and to protect and to protest Manchin's potential openness to changing the filibuster rules. So absolutely, Heritage, the, uh, the, the millions of dollars that Heritage Action spent in 2021 mm-hmm. included uh, substantial expenditures to, to pressure Manchin and Cinema uh, in order to not reform the filibuster and thwart uh, democracy reform legislation. Of course, it wasn't them doing it. It was the grassroots. It was the people who were just, you know, couldn't stand to see the filibuster changed. Uh, the audio that I played there from Jessica Anderson, uh, the executive director of Heritage Action, uh, is, that was at a, uh, supposedly it was a, pr- a, a private donors conference, but it seemed like there was a whole bunch of people there 
And it did not seem that she was embarrassed at all. I mean, surely she she must have known that somebody was going to tape, uh, you know, or video record this or something. She does not seem embarrassed at all to boast that, you know, the group, her group, is actually writing these bills for these state legislatures and then trying to pretend, uh, you know, to make them look like they have the grassroots uh, bottom-up vibe, as, as she <laughs> described it. I mean... What does that tell us that, you know, did she think this was going to stay private or do these folks not really care anymore? Because ultimately, the next question here is, you know, is anything actually unlawful that they're doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Heritage Action you know, does not disguise the fact that it thinks uh, that it believes in the the lie that elections are susceptible to substantial fraud. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not embarrassed about the fact that they're promoting uh, restrictive voting, voting bills Mm -hmm. that, you know, undermine the public's access to the ballot box. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, I think uh, Jessica Anderson was perhaps a little bit more explicit uh, when she thought she was speaking to, uh, a room full of donors than she might be if she was speaking in public. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, the, the thrust of what Anderson was describing on that private video um, is, is supported by you know, public materials about Heritage Action's activities, um, including the tax filings that we obtained, as well as lobbying records on both the state and the federal level. Uh, you write, Brendan Fisher, that the uh, New York Times found that one-third, one-third of the 68 voting bills filed in Georgia in 2021 contained policy measures and language that aligned very closely with proposals from Heritage Action. So is that the direct result of this copy and paste, you know, so-called model legislation that is essentially handed to them uh, by Heritage? Is that what we, we should presume from that? Um, well, we can, we can we know that the policies that Heritage Action was promoting appeared uh, in the, the, the restrictive bill enacted in Georgia and the other bills that were, were proposed in Georgia, um, and that Heritage Action was pouring substantial resources uh, into Georgia legislation. Um, there's, al- there's also, you know, I think it should be noted, though, that there are a number of other groups on the right that are also pouring substantial mm-hmm. resources into uh, restrictive voter legislation and in driving their your far-right activists into the election space. Mm-hmm. Um, so Heritage Action played an important role, but it did not necessarily play a singular role um, in restrictive voting bills in states like Georgia. You, uh, you also report the group had a hand, at least, in advancing 11 voting bills in at least eight states in 2021. Is, uh, you know, the big question here, is anything that they are doing actually unlawful in any way, or are we just sort of exposing what they are doing and what the laws currently allow them to do, as as appalling as it may be? Yeah, there's, there's nothing that I've seen um, of Heritage Action's activities with respect to promoting restrictive voting bills that violates the law. What 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 Heritage Action is doing is taking re- is um, you know using its substantial dark money resources in order to you know, protect the broken political system and undermine the freedom to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, that's ultimately what we're, what we're helping, to, helping to expose and helping to inform the public about. You know, in one sense, Brendan, I, I'm, I'm sort of jealous 
about all of this, what what uh, Heritage Action, their schemes, what they're able to do, what ALEC has long been able to do, the American Legislative Exchange Council, you know, to create these model laws for these various things that are then taken by Republicans, introduced as if they wrote them themselves back in their own uh, state legislatures. The reason I say I'm jealous is, you know, if it's not actually unlawful, are there any similar progressive or democratic groups who do the same thing, who produce this so-called model legislation that is then actually used by democratic lawmakers around the country? And uh, if so, is it funded to the same sort of level that these right-wing groups are? And if not, should there be such groups? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, certainly there are a number of groups on the the democratic side or the progressive side you know that that have helped to support legislation that would expand democracy and make it easier mm-hmm. for people to vote um, and I think that's ultimately ultimately what's at issue here um, you know are the the bills at issue are the, are the bills that we're talking about mm-hmm. and the policies that we're talking about you know, going to expand access to democracy or or restrict it Yeah. And, I, you know, I just don't and whether it's democracy or anything else that uh, uh, progressives and Democrats care about, I just don't get the same the the, the sense that there is that same sort of uh, political infrastructure, uh, you know, that we see on the right with so much money. Maybe it's there. I just don't know about it. And and, And to some respect, I wish there was not only to push for good progressive policies, you know, but to compete with what the Republicans are doing and frankly have been doing for so long to the point where you see in state after state, whether it's on, you know, voting, abortion, uh, gun safety, you know, all down the line, we see the same bills passed over and over in state after state. And we don't see anything similar to that uh, on the Democratic side, at least as far as I have been able to uh, find. Uh, Brendan uh, Fisher, uh, in a separate matter here on Tuesday uh, this week, according to Roger Sullenberger at the uh, Daily Beast, notorious uh, Republican liar and freshman congressman George Santos, quote, filed a flurry of amended campaign finance reports telling the feds, among other things, that about seven hundred thousand dollars that he had claimed previously to have personally loaned to his own campaign didn't in fact actually come from his personal funds, as he had previously asserted in uh, in federal findings. Well, knock me over with a feather. You mean George Santos lied? Anyway, do we know where did that money come from? And if it was not from him, is that even lawful since the new filings, you know, just say that, oh, this didn't come from me after all, but it doesn't tell us where it did come from? Right. That's the big question. You know, where did George Santos's money come from? We still don't know, and George Santos isn't telling us. Um, so just to back up a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, George Santos has a, has a very troubled financial history. He's mm-hmm. been evicted from a number of apartments. He, uh, news reports have indicated that he's le- left a long, long string of debts. Uh, when he ran for office in 2020, he disclosed that he earned no income in 2020 and just a $55,000 salary mm-hmm. the year prior in 2019. Um, but lo and behold, when he runs for office last year, in 2022, he discloses that his wealth has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. And this company that he created in May 2021, after he had already started running for office, had paid him around $1.75 million 
in both 2021 and 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, so awfully questionable, <laughs> awfully questionable whether this was a legitimate company, uh-huh. uh, whether Santos actually uh, generated you know, legitimate, legitimate revenue and income um, from this company or whether that money was coming from some other source. Uh, where, where it relates to his campaign is that a substantial amount of, the, of his campaign funds purportedly came from Santos himself. Mm-hmm. Um, over $700,000 uh, of Santos' campaign funds you know, were, were reported as personal loans from the candidate. Mm-hmm. So the question is, where did that money come from? Did it come from this mysterious company that has no apparent clients? Um, and, <laughs> yeah, sure. and if so, where uh-huh. did that company get its money from? You know, the, the amended reports last night do nothing to clarify this mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 the around $625,000 of the loans that Santos claims to have made to his campaign, uh, now are, are not, are, are still reported as candidate loans, but they've unchecked the box that says the funds were the personal funds of the candidate. So you know we that that may suggest that the money came from some other some other source, but uh-huh. we don't know what that source is. Um, you know, and all of this suggests a lot of illegality. There's a lot of potential campaign finance violations. The, 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 other than the candidate themselves, who else could loan? I mean, it, it, isn't there campaign finance limits on anyone else making any sort of loans? The the only person that can actually legally loan their own campaign that much money would have to be the candidate themselves, right? Right. Well, the reason that that box is on the form, mm-hmm. um, because the the, the the loan is reported as having come from Santos himself, the reason that there's a separate box for whether these are the personal funds of the candidate is because a candidate could receive a bank loan and then mm-hmm. use the proceeds from that bank loan to put into their campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps you take out a a second mortgage on your home okay. in order to finance a loan to your campaign. But you, if, if that's the case, you have to disclose the underlying loan. And it can really only be a bank loan. It can only be a loan from a financial institution. You can't, you can't get a loan, you, you can't get a loan from, from, from some individual or some corporation and then put that money into your campaign. That would be illegal. So basically, mm-hmm. if, if, Santos, if, the, if the source of Santos's purported personal loan was anything other than his personal funds, or a bank loan, then that then that money was illegal, um, and, and Santos did not disclose that the any sort of a bank loan. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the the inference is that Santos illegally used um, prohibited funds uh, for his for his campaign. So but again, it... we don't know because these reports are a complete mess, right? And it can be really just difficult to distinguish between Santos being. Um, incredibly sloppy and Santos being intentionally deceitful. If so, in other words, if it was, uh, if it came from a, uh, a, a, a corporation, a company, or even a person, a Russian oligarch, and said, Hey, George Santos, here's $700,000. Uh, that I am loaning you. Go ahead and loan it to your 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 campaign. Uh, you can say it was a personal loan. That would wildly violate campaign finance laws. But I have a crazier question, Brendan, and I, you know, uh, give, I, I realize it's crazy. But given who we are dealing with, uh, you know, maybe it's not all that crazy. Uh, you know, we all learned about uh, Santos' story, his life of lies, and so forth, and this seven hundred thousand he supposedly personally loaned his campaign. But I have wondered, since hearing about this. 
if he actually did. In other words, if anyone actually did. Do we know, Brendan, uh, as, as one of the nation's foremost campaign finance experts, do we know for a fact that $700,000 was actually given to the campaign as opposed to just claimed on paper. And the reason I ask this is because, you know, I'm sure you know, you recall Ted Cruz went all the way to the Supreme Court to get a ruling that would allow people like him to loan his own campaign money and then have it paid back after the campaign by donors, which is really, you know, the equivalent of out and out payoffs to elected officials, it seems to me. Is it possible that Santos simply made up that number of 700000 in hopes of later receiving post-election campaign payoffs? Or is that a crazy idea? Yeah, it's an interesting theory. And, you know, I think you're right that Santos was banking on uh, exploiting, or Santos was anticipating that he would exploit the, the, the Ted Cruz decision from the court, mm-hmm. uh, allowing him to continue repaying this purported personal loan um, you know, well after his campaign ended and to do it from you know, lobbyists mm-hmm. and, other, and other donors. Right. Um, you know, which which is obscene good... on its own, by the way. Just want to make that clear. That Ted Cruz ruling is obscene on its own. But yes, please continue. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly appeared that his campaign needed the money. His campaign was spending uh-huh. money like crazy um, we don't really know where a lot of the a lot of the campaign money went you know much of the spending appeared to have been obscured through these odd $199.99 payments mm-hmm. uh, just below the threshold uh, by which the campaign would have to keep receipts mm-hmm. to actually verify that the money was spent in a legitimate way so you know it, it seemed that Santos's campaign needed the money both for legitimate campaign expenditures as well as potentially some illegitimate ones. So <laughs> it, it's hard to tell. It's, yeah. it's hard to tell, um, and it can be really difficult uh, to know, you know how to interpret any marking on Santos's campaign, campaign finance reports, because they are such a mess. You know, even before this scandal broke, um, the, the FEC was, was consistently asking the Santos campaign to amend its reports and fix yeah. fix a long list of errors. You know, many of these reports were amended multiple times, four or five, six times. Um, and that's even before anyone knew about Santos's lies. I, you know, I got to get out, but I'm just laying down this marker. I would love uh, someone to confirm one way or another that that $700,000 that he actually claimed to loan to his campaign, no matter who it came from, I'm really wondering if it actually happened or if it was all on paper. Just, I, it's crazy, I know, but we are talking about George Santos, and would it really be that crazy? Anyway, uh, Brendan, Brendan Fisher, Deputy Executive Director at Documented.net. Thank you, as always, for joining us for your good work. Congratulations, by the way, uh, on this uh, important digging you're doing into the Heritage Foundation and their action uh, uh, committee. It's really critical. Thank you for shining a light on that. You can find his work at Documented.net. You can find them on Twitter at It's Documented. And you can find Brendan himself on Twitter as well, Brendan underscore Fisher. Thank you, my friend. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. 
Okay, we do have to get out, but uh, <laughs> but wow. <laughs> well, I know, and Des, I was actually hoping, uh, and I know I sort of sprung it on him, yeah. uh, but I was sort of hoping Brendan would say, "Well, no, that's ridiculous. Of course, if you know the FEC would have found this, they certainly they check the bank accounts, right? After someone claims they gave this much money to the campaign, they actually yeah. check to make sure that much money actually showed up in the campaign. He he didn't say that. No, he didn't. So, you know, I, I guess know. I guess we'll I mean, I hope I hope we'll find out that mm-hmm. that is, you know, an actual legitimate transfer of actual money, not just a thing on a piece of paper. A legitimate illegal transaction, <laughs> but it actually was a transaction. It actually happened. I don't know if it did or not. And I don't know. It sort of sounded like Brendan couldn't tell us. For sure, either yeah, at but, this point. Yes, but I also want to speak to one yes. thing that he had mentioned that, that yes. is still larger picture of how Heritage Action is actually uh, yes. uh, using all of this uh, rich people money yes. to rig the system. And, and it just underscores the need to tax the rich because it makes that case more and more that they the rich and corporations, they get tax cuts from Republicans. They use those tax cuts, those new profits, to then rig the political system, use yep. dark money to pour into every election that they can to get more Republicans elected to then get more tax cuts so that they can then rig the system even more. And if you had any question about whether there is whether, you know, taxes need to be raised on these people, you just got to look at this uh, jackass uh, comedian, I guess he calls it, Stephen Crowder, Mm -hmm. who was offered uh, $50 million for four years of doing a 90-minute uh, podcast show each day by yep. uh, these uh, right wingers. Uh, Where just, does all that there money come is from? So much money on the right uh, compared to uh, what is uh, on the non right. It, it's obscene. Obviously, uh, the wealthy have way too much money, and they they're using need it. to be taxed more. Yeah, yeah, and they are using it for nefarious purposes. Unfortunately, to rig the system. You're right. Good point, Desi Doyen. Thank you very much. Desi Doyen is, of course, our producer. And my thanks to all of you as well for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime, no paywall, at bradblog.com. While you're there, do consider hitting one of them donate buttons. We are 100% listener and reader supported. We could not survive without you. We thank you for that. And you can go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at The Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day workers at the Kent Avenue power plant in New York City struck at Brooklyn Manhattan Transit. The power plant served as the sole source of electrical power for the entire New York City subway system. Transport Workers Local Union 100 had been trying to beat back the company's push to form a company union through an educational organizing drive there. 
out of the 505 workers at the plant, only 35 were TWU members. On this day, two boiler room engineers with 10 years on the job each were fired for their union activity and given three minutes to leave the plant. Inspired by the Flint sit-down strike, then still in progress, TWU President Mike Quill called for a sit-down to protest the dismissals. 31 workers locked themselves in, and Quill announced that if the two fired workers were not reinstated by 6 a.m. the next morning, all switches would be pulled, shutting down the entire transit system. He insisted that the BMT had long abused its workforce and was in violation of the new Wagner Act. Newspaper headlines screamed of a worker's insurrection at the power plant, and the BMT quickly called in company goons to threaten the hundreds of picketers surrounding the plant. Workers stood their ground and prevented strike-breaking forces from breaking through the barricaded entrances. They organized food brigades and gained support even from the newspaper reporters who helped with food deliveries. By 5.30 a.m. the next morning, the BMT gave in to the demands of Quill and the TWU and reinstated the fired workers. Impressed by the victory of the job action, the power plant was fully organized within two days. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com.